Welcome, everyone. I'm really, really delighted to have my good friend Bradley Jerzak with me today. And Bradley, I'm going to ask you to jump right in. Everybody, if, they, if they're listening to me, they already know you, I'm assuming. So I'm not even going to bother with introducing you. Okay. You need no introduction. Everybody knows. And if they don't know, I want the fact that you need no introduction to shame them into doing their own research about, about who you are. Powerful <laughs> I, motivator. I to, <laughs> exactly. I want you to jump right in. This is what I want you to talk about. Okay. I, I've heard you talk about this on several occasions, and I want to have it on the record so I can redirect my friends and my students, and I myself can find my way back to it again and again. Okay. What you learned about the Beatitudes as a sevenfold fire through which we discern the will of God. Very good. Yeah. So I'll say to begin with that uh, I developed a very deep interest in the Beatitudes in a period of my life where I was having a meltdown. And one of my mentors, Ron Dart, who was writing a book on the Beatitudes, took me into the mountains, literally. And we did a lot of what began as mountain hikes and then ascended to mountaineering included many conversations about um, what the Beatitudes are, how they function, and how they can uh, become a powerful tool mm. of discernment and a hermeneutic. And so, you know, we have this foundational teaching laid out at the very beginning of of Christ's ministry in Matthew, and it's the first thing he does in the Sermon on the Mount. I began to connect this with a passage from the Old Testament where it says this, the word of the Lord is pure, like silver refined in the fire seven times. And that was such a powerful image for me of this mm -hmm. furnace yeah. um, with, with a blazing hot fire through which you could uh, pass every uh, alleged word from the Lord uh, to test it yeah. and to purify what we ourselves are hearing from God, what we are reading in the text in terms of how we interpret it. Um, it was just a humorous beginning, though, for, for me with this was, you know, I was part of the renewal movement in the 90s and early 2000s and a part of the renewal movement was this resurgence of of prophetic voices and of course the the renewal movement they love the imagery of fire and what i was seeing happen was how these you know the fiery revivalists and their and the prophetic voices were coming through and they were becoming stranger and stranger all the time yeah. and that even our initial um, grid for weighing and testing what they were saying, which was, um, does it align with the scripture? Does it align with the church? Does it, does it align with the spirit? That wasn't sufficient because anyone can find a Bible verse, yeah. a yes man, and a warm fuzzy feeling and call mm -hmm. that the word, the body, and the spirit. But yes. so um, we were seeing the, the, these folks becoming more and more politicized and more and more especially grandiose. Meanwhile, I was walking through um, some processes of 12-step recovery where I, I knew grandiosity is the number two cause of relapse. 
So mm. something's really weird here. Mm. And I would have folks um, trying to, it was like, if they thought I was someone, which is silly, but they could feed their egos by bringing me a prophetic word so they could leave later and say, hey, I prophesied over Brad Jerzak. And, mm. uh, and, and uh, but the things they were saying to me were like, and the Lord is going to, make you a leader of nations and i'm like really so like i'll be prime minister and and the and the president as well like multiple nations i'm gonna lead that and and he will make them your inheritance and they're quoting psalm 2 of course messianic psalm is and it's like you know update your passport because he's gonna take you across the globe and nations will bow i'm like you're crazy and so this is then i realize okay we need a much hotter furnace (laughs) to refine the word of the lord and so um i just began integrating that my program of recovery using the beatitudes and the teachings of jesus as that furnace but i would sneak up on people so i would do it this way i go in for a conference um renewal fire all of this language is there so i would start i would start stoking that on a friday night and all through saturday it's like make sure you come back sunday because because we're going to give you a furnace so hot that it will, you, you'll be able to have the pure word of the Lord, like silver refined in fire seven times. And you'll, it'll be almost impossible to deceive you. Does anyone here want to be deceived? Put up your hands. No, me oh, neither. Right. Then we need to install this furnace, fire, fire, fire. And they're just ravenous, right? Because it's like, yeah. we're going to talk about the fire, the seventh fire, the purifier, the, you know. And then on Sunday morning, I would just walk through the Beatitudes. I'm like, this is it. Mm. You put this in your heart. And I would give them examples. I would tell them about, about like these prophetic words that were so grandiose. I'm like, okay, let's just throw that in the fire and see what happens. Yeah. Mm. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are who mourn. Blessed are the meek. They will inherit the earth. Sizzle. Mm. Yes, right. And it's it's consumed, right? Grandiosity can't even get to the fourth beatitude. I mean, it's gone. If you understand it rightly, it's done in the first one. But you know, you get the idea. So yeah, I I want I want you to keep going. But I'm gonna ask you a couple questions. Yes. One is the the connection, then and now between political fervor, grandiosity, Right. So I, obviously a mutual friend of ours, you know him much better than I do, but Bob Eckblad yeah. is, has been working recently again. I mean, he's written and spoken often about the prophetic, but I think he's, I talked with him a couple of weeks ago for a little while. He's deeply concerned again of kind of where the prophetic movement is. he's describing that same phenomenon so talk to talk to me a little bit about that like what's the connection between you know getting caught up in the culture wars buying into political agenda getting carried away with prophetic announcements and pronouncements and how is that related to grandiosity and losing trying to think of the right word sobriety I mean, could be yes. <laughs> to cut to the chase. Like how there, there's a way in which there's a there's something intoxicating about all that. That's exactly right. Wow, what a what a good way to say it. It what is intoxicating us? Um, in in the prayer of Saint Ephraim of Syria. So 
I've been praying, you know, the Beatitudes every day for more than a decade, maybe two. I don't, I don't know. Uh, but, but my godfather there also has me praying the prayer of St. Ephraim, at least through Lent every day. He says, I wish you would do it every day because in it, it's a, it asks us to be delivered from uh, four spirits. And one of those is ambition mm. and, and it's ambition around power. It's around the intoxicating allure of, of, um, it can be political power, it can be control, power, control, agendas, all of those things. And grandiosity is about puffing oneself up. So this is about pride. Yeah. And, um, and it can all sound very nice, because it's like the Lord wants to do this great thing. And yes. he wants you, he wants to use you to do it. Um, or if we could just get enough of us together, to vote the right people in, then we could actually take control. <laughs> yes. And I remember um, a friend of mine was invited weirdly into a prophetic round table. And at this prophetic round table, th these are the folks that were on the phone weekly with the White House during the Bush presidency. And they okay. were very, very proud of this. They advertised this. And, um, and the chair of the meeting, uh, they referred to him as the apostle of the apostles. <laughs> and um, he was talking about how frustrated he was with younger people because they don't listen to spiritual authority. And, and we're that. And, we, and they use these kind of phrases. We are the epicenter of what God is doing in this world. That, that's like crazy. That's grandiosity. It's unhinged. I mean, even grandiosity is a little shamefaced at that kind of pump. I know it's embarrassed by it. <laughs> and so th this guy turned to my friend who was a young man at the time. And he said, so you're a young man and you're not saying much. What do you think about this? And my friend said, you know, well, I don't think young people have a problem with, with spiritual authority. What, what they're looking for, though, are fathers and mothers who can tell them the true definition of of spiritual success and he says so you're a father why don't you tell me what do you think the true definition of spiritual success is and this guy um says a uh, total governmental takeover before i die okay Dang. so my friend gratefully stood up and he said this is bogus and he walked out of the meeting now these these th this was the upper echelons of that movement mm -hmm. And I'm looking at that saying, all my friends subscribe to these guys and anything they say um, is the word of the Lord. And sure. everything they're saying right now is about political power. So like, so I'm like, how can we not be deceived? And then I realized if you have the Beatitudes in your heart, it's not even a problem. <laughs> like, it's not confusing at all. It's just mm -hmm. this incredible purge of all mm -hmm. of that garbage. Um, so you're, you, I love that you connected that, you know, that this is, we've lost our sobriety through the intoxication of power and control, which is precisely the opposite of kenosis, yes. which is the very nature of God. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're drinking in more and more and more flooding ourselves with lies that inflate us, that, that yes. puff us up, as you said, which side note. I remember, 
I think it was Bible college, but I was very young when it, it hit me that in Paul, when Paul says knowledge puffs, knowledge puffs up, that I had been conditioned to think that the knowledge that puffs up is learning, education, mm. that you're puffed up if you go to cemetery, which is what the word we used for cemetery. <laughs> yep. But I realized, no, 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 neither in that context nor mine was Paul talking about learning. He meant revelatory knowledge. Like in our language, the it is thinking you know the secrets of God's wisdom that puffs you up. Yes. It's, a, it's a, a sense of prophetic insight. Yes. Is what We've got the inside track. Yeah. That's what he's critiquing there. And yeah. we continue to be intoxicated. And he connects that, their intoxication with those gifts is inseparable from the drunkenness that he sees at the supper, right? So where some people are not getting anything and others are overeating and overdrinking and tied to the sexual licentiousness, right? The, the, mm. the, the breaking of proper boundaries sexually as well. So I think if you read first Corinthians, well, it's pretty clear that Paul is saying like that your openness to different spirits and your lack of sobriety and soundness of heart like it, it shows itself on all of these fronts and it's not an accident that we're we're seeing those scandals in the churches again right that there, there are sex scandals that are happening right alongside these prophets who are breaking all bounds politically and theologically you know carried away by this by the spirits of this this moment yeah, and, and, and displacing actual revelation. So it's not just that yes, they got right. good revelation and it made them proud. It's like we're talking now pseudo-Christ. Yes. And um, it, it, it's weird to me that it's the momentum of it is crazy. But again, I really, I feel like those red letters, um, yeah. they can do a job on this stuff. There are, Jesus, the words, the words and the program of Jesus, really they're, they're his um, constitution of the kingdom of God, and they are the they are his version of the fruit of the spirit. And these things really, I, I have so much confidence in them. But that's because I pray, you know, that's why I pray them every day. Mm. And um, mm. it makes the ludicrous seem ludicrous. Yes, which need. is what you want, right? That's what that's it. What purging does, right? It it tells you really quickly the the coinage, the, yes, the sourcing of these supposed gifts, these supposed words. So let's, let's, let's make a connection here to, I know Augustine does it. I'm sure there were others before him who did, and it becomes standard fare in the middle ages to kind of relate the beatitudes to other sevens in scripture. So you yes. get, you know, Augustine makes the connection between the, the seven beatitudes and the seven gifts of the spirit in Isaiah 11 and the seven petitions of the Lord's prayer. Now that, might strike some of us as arbitrary. I, I don't think it all at all is. It and it's and it's more than just a pedagogical device. I mean, that is one way of teaching people the scriptures, mm -hmm. like connect these sevens to those sevens. But I think it it is it has more power than that. It's not simply a way of teaching scripture. It is a form of spiritual direction and discipleship. It's guidance into that wisdom. So talk just a little bit about the way you see the Beatitudes working as a sevenfold fire and how that might relate to other fires in scripture. And maybe give us some examples. You talked about grandiosity, but what are some other examples of things that when you put them in the fire of the Beatitudes, 
it starts to tell the tell pretty quickly. Yeah, I think I'm going to need you to to um, to make some of those connections to the other sevens, but I can start at least by saying, you know, my studies of this have a lot to do with the Eastern Fathers and what people like Gregory of Nyssa and St. John Chrysostom did with them, but uh, particularly Gregory, where he says, um, it's almost like each beatitude leads to the next one right right and a ladder it's a ladder it, moving up and down it's yeah. a ladder but we could also think about it as a dial on the furnace mm. um, we're going to turn it up again not to say the second one is better or hotter than the first one but now we've got two going and then yes. three going and then four yes. going and so i'm i'm really fascinated by um by both the progression and then also a two-layered reading. So I'll just say quickly a little bit about each. So when I think about um, the progression, and I, I also see this in the seven petitions of the Lord's Prayer, there's a progression going here. Um, one example of that would be, um, yeah, blessed are you if you hunger and thirst for justice. Yes. Same word as righteousness, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But in hungering and thirsting for justice, then you can also become an angry activist. So that the, the, it's very important that you move from justice to mercy and how they kiss each other, and that mm -hmm. the means yes. of justice is mercy. And, and, and that experiencing that mercy ourselves uh, prevents us from, let's say, active, activist burnout. Mm -hmm. And then having experienced some of this mercy, we're like, um, now I'm having this respiration between justice and mercy, and and yet, um, okay. Now I need to feed my soul. Oh, blessed are the pure in heart. So he's the the pure in heart um, who see the Lord. Their hearts are purified from in unjust means towards just ends. Mm. And so, in seeing the Lord, beholding the Lord, being cleansed by that vision, now, now I have. I'm walking through the inner transformation of the peacemaker so that when I go to do peacemaking, I'm sowing peace to, to do justice. I'm not just um, sowing violence to make peace or something like that. And then, the, and then as soon as you're doing that, if the transformed peacemaker goes out and they're doing justice and loving mercy, what's going to happen? Oh, you'll be persecuted for the sake of righteousness. So you mm. can see these, this kind of progression yeah. in it what I meant by the two layers is that Gregory says, you know, there's a literal sense where these things are true, but he takes a, Christ takes us up on the mountain so we can see the spiritual sense. And an example of that would be in um, uh, the literal sense of blessed are the merciful, you'll obtain mercy would be like, Hey, if you do merciful things, um, people or God will be merciful back to you. It's reciprocal and that's true. Yeah. And it's fair. But he says, but but there's a higher sense, a mount, the mountaintop sense of this is, if you do mercies, you will obtain mercy in your character and become like God, mm. like you're you're being yeah. deified in in who you are. And so it's not about just getting people to be merciful back to us, but it's about taking this this handle in the real world and doing the merciful stuff and then and then seeing how that transfigures us um, to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect so yeah. that'd be an example of the double layering so mm. that pro a progression of the fire where we're turning the dial up each time we've got the double layer of the fire that where one is about the fruit of how we live in this world but then also the fruit of my heart being 
um, transformed by the fire from glory to glory to the image of Jesus Christ. Wow. Yeah. I love that. So then let me show you the way Augustine reads it, which you may already be familiar with, but, and I'll let you kind of riff on that for a moment. So he, as we said, he connects these seven and he, he also sees a similar progression that we move from one to the other. Obviously he's not using the metaphor you're using, but he recognizes that development and he sees a similar development in the petitions and in these gifts in Isaiah 11. Now, what's interesting is in Isaiah 11, it actually begins with wisdom and ends with the fear of the Lord. Mm. So we're, we're told that this spirit rests upon the Messiah, the spirit of wisdom, and so on and so on, and that he walks in the fear of the Lord. And Augustine makes the argument that we know from Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So even though this is fully realized in the life of Jesus this way, in terms of how we learn it, we learn it the other way around. So he essentially sees it as a, it's realized from, kind of from top to bottom by Jesus, but we live it from bottom to top. Yes. So there you get the, um, I don't know if he ever uses the latter imagery, but certainly that's what they're picking up on. Yes. The other side to that is that it's a downward mobility into yes. fear of the it's Lord. It's kenosis again. In, it's in terms absolutely of kenosis. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So what he argues is that we all kind of begin then in fear of the Lord, poverty of spirit and therefore we're able to let me read this exactly how he says it hold on a sec we we're able to hallow god's name right mm -hmm. so if we have the fear of the lord from the spirit and we cultivate our own poverty of spirit then that's what it means to hallow god's name right and then out it's of beautiful that, beautiful yeah, it's, it, it's it's yes it's so lovely and out of that comes these movements through knowledge and fortitude and understanding and it all culminates in wisdom that is the wisdom of the peacemaker who's able to deliver from evil so the last petition in the prayer deliver us from evil is fulfilled as we become the peacemakers who in the wisdom of the lord that's been cultivated out of this fear of the lord are, are able to live as god lives and i think that's where you see the integration of what you were talking about as the two layers, right? Where yeah. how I'm loving my neighbor is inseparable from God's love happening in me and shaping me into the character and nature of God. So talk a little bit about that, how, how, how that fits with what you're, what you've seen and what you're seeing. Well, first of all, where, so which text is that in from Augustine? Because people should be know this he he gets i give him a bad rap because you know he did some crazy things like masa damnata and and uh, yeah. all of that but but like credit where it's due right yeah it's it's from his sermons on the sermon on the mount okay so the and it's scattered around through multiple of them but he he's actually i, I feel like augustine is best when he's dealing with the text in front of him or dealing with a pastoral situation, it's when he tries to provide big overarching philosophical frameworks for dealing with those issues. That's where you get those claims about, well, this is what's happening providentially. And this is what predestination means. Like I think the, the big scale works are, are problematic, but he's, he's a very able reader. Yes. And yeah. is a, in many cases, I, I think a deeply sensitive pastor. Uh, he's a man of prayer 
and that shows itself i think in in these moments of insight mm. he, he he almost certainly wrote too much right i mean he in that way he's a victim of his own publishability yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Like, you know, like there, there's too much on the record Profic prolifically wrong <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but be that as it may just that that kind of way of thinking about how scripture should be working in our lives right how the yeah. spirit is using scripture in our lives to shape us toward godliness toward living the kinds of lives that jesus lives yeah well, okay, I have a few things to say about that. So I think for me, the overarching um, system, what a terrible word, but you know, it's a fact that everything, my, my most um, powerful lens personally, so it's good to know you have one and it's good to assess it. And I think it's a good one. I think kenosis is my, is my lens. Mm. So, so um, I'm going to start big and risk the same troubles Augustine got in. Um, and that is to say that God is love and that this love is, is uh, looks like the Lord Jesus Christ. And this love is canonic and it's cruciform. All right. So if I'm using that as my lens, um, it's canonic and it's cruciform. This is, this defines um, and embodies the nature of love that we're referring to when we say God is love. And so to see God is to see the one on the cross in the very act of kenosis, not emptying himself of godness, but actually unveiling what godness is. It yes. is canonic love. And so we start there. And now I'm going to go over to the Beatitudes and say, all right, um, if you look at the Beatitudes, Benedict the 16th said, notice how, um, this is actually a, it's a veiled autobiography of the life of Christ, where That's the right. first half of every beatitude is about crucifixion, and the second half is about resurrection. And now mm -hmm. Jesus comes along, he says, take up your cross and follow me. In other words, we're going to transpose the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ into the life of daily discipleship. So the cruciform um, A in each in each beatitude, what does cruciformity mean in the, in our daily lives? It's kenosis. It is bank. The first poverty of spirit is it bankrupting the demands of the ego, mm. and that's why it's it is a program of recovery. That's why it parallels so well to the twelve step guys. It's like we we begin yeah. with we were powerless. Um, well, and, I, I want you to keep going, but I yep. and I, I'm not. I don't mean this. It's going to sound like a jest, but I don't mean it as a jest. Mm -hmm. I think we need a prophetics anonymous or a prophets anonymous. Absolutely, like the charismatic Pentecostal movement. Like we've become addicted to giving and receiving words, mm -hmm. and the the more space, more airtime, the bigger the stage, the more addicting, the, the higher the high. I suppose. Yeah. yeah but the harder the fall. Yeah. And so I, I, I think, man, I, I keep coming back to that, how this all began in you was that realization of how our own spirituality can so easily turn against us and devour our humanity. Totally. And devour the humanity of people around us. And what yeah. you're talking about here is, is not, it is sobriety, but it's the 
sobriety of being in our own bodies, being sane in the way that God is sane. Yeah. And, and I think, gosh, what a vital word for this moment. Yeah. And, and so, so if you think about that first beatitude, what is it doing? And it is, it, it is a program of recovery from egoism, which is to say self-will, which is to say what happened in the garden. Mm-hmm. self-will i want to be god without god i'm going to be i'm going to do this i'm going to overcome i'm going to lead nations yeah. i'm going to and yeah. so and so the whole sermon on the mount goes after this right if why do you let someone why do you turn the other cheek to let someone slap you you know walter wink came up with the idea it was a way to shame them or something it's like no i am i am i am engaging my enemy so that he can that, that he he colludes with me in the in the crucifixion of egoism and the, that kind of thing so just again the the first one it's almost like mm. the first beatitude enfolds all the rest in terms of what is this project about it's about yeah. kenosis through the crucifixion of egoism and and uh through surrender complete surrender even like in in the gethsemane sense to align my will to the father's and then on top of that, like, um, it, it, it it's almost like the title of the whole Sermon on the Mount. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is up to. So one more thing there. So then um, I noticed this uh, in French when Simone Weil is playing, she's playing back and forth between kenosis in Philippians 2 and the first beatitude. And the, the, mm-hmm. the language she uses is, um, uh, blessed are those who are are void in spirit they voided they voided mm-hmm. egoism yeah. and then in philippians 2 and though being in very nature god he did not you know regard equality with god this this consisting of grasping yeah but of voiding mm. and again so it's about letting go again and emptying himself of what um yeah. all the demands of his potential shadow side yeah right yeah 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 yeah. i i think one thing that might be worth just noting here is is that what the culminating work of the fruit of the spirit or the culmination of the work of the spirit in our life is self-control that when the spirit has finished the work of the spirit i am most myself i am realized as the person i was made to be and that i want to be in order to get to that, I have to lose what we're calling ego here. Like I have yeah. to set aside. And of course, different people use the word ego in different ways. I mean, is the ego something that needs to be crucified or something that simply needs to be decentered? You know, there are different arguments about that. But I think what yeah. we have to be. That's why I used egoism. Egoism, egoism right. the enthronement of the ego, because then it yeah. satisfies even those who would define ego in a way as you need to have one. Yes, you right. do. But then, yeah, decentering or dethroning it is uh, so that it becomes a servant yeah so what i what i talked about yesterday and and maybe this is this needs to remain kind of imperfectly defined i don't want to be too systematic about it but i think Mm -hmm. there are ways in which there are false selves Mm -hmm. there are shadow selves and then there are true selves that still need to be brought into alignment 
totally god's purposes right so and and, all of this healed it healed absolutely yeah absolutely so it i don't know that we know and can know right now which is which certainly not all the time you know Mm. when i yesterday when i was pronouncing the the blessing at the end of the service i just said to everyone listen the lord is speaking a word to you as you really are but you've got a whole host of selves that are hearing this word and you're i talked about this in the sermon but we're essentially all right now a hall of mirrors of our own images and the images of other people william james has this one this wonderful line in which he says when two people meet there are six people present there's the person the person they think they are the person that they think the other person is and so on down the line and i'd said in the sermon i think it's actually eight right so when i'm talking to you there's me, there's my image of myself, my image of you, and then my image of your image of me, what I what I think you think about me. So I'm these four. And <laughs> this is why you four. get migraines, man. <laughs> <laughs> and so we're a hall of mirrors, right? It, it's and really but true. When he, but when he comes in, mm. like he, he doesn't see all of those shadow selves and false images. He sees us as we are and speaks directly to us. Like his word always reaches our hearing whether we understand that or not. And I think, again, leaving room for different ways of understanding what we mean by ego, I think the crucial point is we're not giving up anything that's good and true and right. We're not losing anything vital. We are voiding everything that's false, everything that's a lie, all that is untrue, so that what will remain, and this is back to that image of the fire, right? That everything that can be consumed will be consumed and what will mm-hmm. remain is essential and everything that can be shaken will be shaken mm-hmm. cannot be shaken will remain so i think i just i think that's an important clarification so that we don't get lost in the terms <clears throat> so do i and and in fact i i used to work for an inner healing ministry um um in a previous life where we did a lot of work with parts right and we actually had a system for this, uh, not a system, we had a relationship. We really believed we were engaging with Jesus Christ um, as we were working with people. And we were aware that that, pe- that that people are so complex that they could have a dissociative part that thinks it's a demon, a demon that pretends it's a dissociative part, whatever even demon means, you know, all of this stuff. And, and that, um, so how do you deal with it? And what we practiced and by God's grace, it seemed to work consistently because he was working with us. We would say, does this part have a human heart? Mm. If it had a human heart, then no matter how demonic it seemed, it is welcome at the table and, and, and is ready for healing. And God wants to speak to it. And that is part of him knowing us as we are, even the wounded demonized yeah. part, yeah. because it, because we, it shares that human heart. Say something, if, Brad, for those who don't know, yeah, because I, I don't know if you know two people are going to hear this or a yeah. thousand. So, give give us a sense of when you you talk about people who've been severely traumatized, yeah. how the ego or the identity can fracture. Yeah, I, you, you, I've heard you talk about this before, and I think it's important for those who might not have that context. Okay, yeah. So what happens? And I I think if through trauma or and it can be type one or two trauma through either injury or neglect. Um, we enter into double binds. Um, 
I love my daddy. Daddies are good. I have to believe my daddy loves me or I can't even live. And my daddy's molesting me. Okay, now what do I do? And so we fracture so that one part carries the what's needed in terms of believing in love and another part carries the wickedness that's been happening and um those parts that carry the darkness can seem very dark but they're heroic yeah. in that they're doing this to, so that the rest of the the self can function mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then what happens is uh, i think this is a gift from god to be able to disassociate to, to it's not just um a tragic fragmentation there's a gift of god in this so that um, that these parts can hold in trust the the injuries that they won't be able to look at until their 30s or 40s. And that's when the, the system begins to crumble and you have to look at it. You become dysfunctional. It's like, okay, now we invite all of who you are to the table to talk with Jesus. And he begins to speak to parts, heal, to heal parts, to integrate parts in his own time. But also, if we, we go, you know what, not everything here is a has a human heart, some of this is is lies, some of yeah. it, some of it are impulses that need to be marginalized that they're not welcome at the table. And, and, and how would you know, well, we would just ask them, Lord, would you tell this person, whether what we're dealing with right now has a human heart or not, there may be other therapists out there that could put this to use and just test it at least and see how, how it works. But what happened was, we discovered that 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 um, um, there were people who had come out of charismatic deliverance ministries where their poor little broken parts were being screamed at as if they're demons, and all yeah. they needed was a hug, mm. you know. And then we were accused of making friends with demons. <laughs> it's like, well, that's weird because this demon wants to be baptized in the name of Jesus now. So, <laughs> okay, <laughs> we'll do that. I swear. Sure. No, it's it's because we're we're complex. And I bring all of that up to say, you know, sometimes um, when we've talked about our true self and that Christ engages with our true self, we start having this ideal in mind that he only loves the part of you that's like him. Yeah, it's like, right. no, he engages with the broken and bruised parts. He, no. he loves them too. And he welcomes them too. And that really is part of you. Yeah. So yeah, what if, if they're truly parts, then yeah. he doesn't mean to leave them apart. No. He won't leave us apart. Yeah. Well, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. So, are so you I'll, ready to expand on your other sevens? And yeah, I was I was going to ask if you would be willing to help me with this. Mm -hmm. so I the reason we talked first about this, and I wanted to have this conversation today, is that I I'm kind of wanting to sketch out along that same line, kind of a a larger scaled version, maybe a bigger furnace. I, mm -hmm. I don't know if that's the right metaphor for it or not. But where the Luke and Beatitudes mm. are kind of at the center of it. And so I, I'm not sure, this is very much a work in progress, but I thought, what the heck, why don't we talk about it and record ourselves talking about it and, and let it work on us as we're trying to do the work. So I, I need to make it clear, I think the seed of this was me hearing you talk about the Beatitudes as a sevenfold furnace, which I've come back to many, many, many times in my own life in all kinds of ways. But I don't quite remember when the plans for this other furnace started in me. Mm -hmm. But I, a few pieces of it were very clear very quickly, and some of it still is not. And so we'll start there, and you can help me sketch it. Yeah, and, you, you, and, just, and you just riff away and I'll 
I'll interrupt as needed. So the first one, the first <laughs> furnace is unless you become like a little child in Matthew 18, unless you change and become like a little child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I think I've been deeply moved recently. Uh, well, when I say recently, at least for the last year, that the move toward maturity is a move toward childlikeness. Yeah. That, that we, we've got to, the only way to face life squarely is, is to face it with the heart of the child. So that the, the heart of the child purified of its childishness, of its pettiness, of its petulance, all of that, the, the heart of the child is the test of the health of what we're teaching. And, and here, here's an, I'll give you some very personal examples. So recently, my, my son, my youngest, who just turned nine, he, and I won't name the person, but he just said, if they're right, he, he had heard somebody talking, and he said, if they're right about what it means to be a Christian, it's a very, very bad thing to be a Christian. Now, so my, he's saying this to my wife. I wasn't there at the time. And she said, what do you mean? He said, well, because they are saying that God uses some, he makes some creatures so he can use them to torture other creatures to make them love him. Mm -hmm. And he had worked all this out from hearing somebody talk about the, the plagues in Egypt and Jonah and the, and the whale, I think. The critical the thinking on, on crack. Yeah, right? quite a lot of thinking so for yeah. and, at, at the time, eight-year-old. But the, the point is, something in his heart as a child, his child's heart, recognized that can't be right. Right. I write about this some in Sanctifying Interpretation, but I think the, my first experience with this was hearing the story of Achan. And, and the way I heard it, and this is not quite the way it's said in the text, but the way I heard it was that Achan's wife and children, as well as his animals, were killed because of his sin. And I remember so vividly, I mean, I was probably around eight years old, standing in the living room, talking to my father, like weeping because how, how hurt I was that God would have done this. And, I, and the way unjust. it was, yeah. it was wrong. And I knew it was wrong. Mm -hmm. I knew that cannot be true somehow. Right. And I could give other examples, but I think those are enough to make the point. I think there's something about if we come to scripture or to any moment of judgment without the heart of the child we will get it wrong mm -hmm. like whether we're talking about hell and damnation or we're talking about politics or we're talking about the demonic and healing and deliverance i, I think we have to come with that sensitivity that i think is innate to child likeness so let me ask you first about that what what do you what do you make of that yeah, I, I fully agree. I can see how that is a complete um, synonym to the first beatitude. Mm. I remember um, during that inner healing time, my I had a, a charismatic Catholic cousin who was an intercessor. And she said, I, she came to me one day and she says, I have a message for you. And, and it is this, um, the Lord wants you to help people come to know that inner child, because that's who connects with Christ most directly. Like wow. interesting. Wow. So it's not just your eight-year-old, but it's your eight-year-old 
right? The boy yes. inside yes. who um, who pre-cynicism, you know, uh, pre-jadedness, uh, pre-grandiose agendas. I mean, like in some ways, kids can be very grandiose, but it feels pure, right? Yes. There's something different about that. So I think that that I just I just keep hearing that childlikeness also in the context of poverty of spirit it doesn't sound like it necessarily but it's like well if it's been emptied of all that is not child mm -hmm. that's what we're talking about well maybe maybe what we're talking about is in the <clears throat> child there's poverty because all of that quote-unquote wealth hasn't been added yet mm, yes like the, the the child remains poor because he hasn't mammon hasn't gotten its grips on it on the child nice nice yeah. whereas we as adults we have to empty ourselves of it like pour it away strip ourselves of it or have it stripped away because you know mammon has sunk its teeth into us at that yeah. point so then i was thinking of the way i've sketched it at least is a movement from that to mary's song okay and part of the reason is personal so another thing that came up out of my heart when i was a child as you know was a song to Mary. So I was, you know, somewhere around eight, nine years old. I'm in prayer. And suddenly I start singing a song to Mary, thanking her for sharing Jesus with us. And wow. it terrified me because, you know, I was raised to think Catholics were the worst of all possible sinners. I mean, the Antichrist was going to be the Pope, of course. Yeah. And the whore of Babylon was the Roman Catholic Church. But somehow that just came up out of me anyway right in spite of what i had been told in spite mm. of like my speaking of jesus communing with me yeah so i if if we started there the first fire is you must become like a child you must be, change and become like a child and then the next fire is working through mary's song which of course luke one begins with magnification of the lord exalting mm -hmm. in the lord and then assuring us right that god is going to to bring justice by bringing the mighty down from the thrones and scattering the proud and the thoughts of their hearts and but lifting up the lowly and filling the hungry and so on i'd, I'd love to hear your kind of reflections on that yeah i just love that so much i'm so, like we're tracking so steadily here because i one of my favorite parts of the divine liturgy, I suppose it's in the Matins prayer, is, is that we all sing the Magnificat together every single week. Mm -hmm. And that's gone. I've internalized that deeply. And so um, what jumps out at me as you're sharing it is like, become the child like Mary. And, mm. you know, we don't have, have to overemphasize her, how young she is to make some point, but what strikes me is that a child like Mary is presenting some fairly intense injustices before the Lord, Absolutely. <clears throat> just like you were with your dad mm. in the story of Achan. And you're weeping there before your dad and Mary is weeping there before her father in heaven. Yeah. And as the child who sees what's wrong in the world is able to, uh, to call for a kind of justice that, you know, to, to, jaded old politicized ears just sounds like marxism you know <laughs> but but like for her this is this is what um the child who knows poverty of spirit and what it is to live under the oppression of of, of 
an occupy, occupying military or in, 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 in empire, you yeah. know, like, wow. Um, so that's working for me. And mm. even she's calling in a sense, isn't she calling for God to enact some kind of kenosis in the world? Absolutely. Instead of to, to flip the hierarchies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this is a side note, but probably worth making. Like, I had this conversation with my oldest. I last Advent, I had had given a sermon on Mary, comparing her with David, and my oldest, who's now at college at Syracuse, she really struggled not so much with what I said, but with. Mary being young and being with child because she was hearing it through the lens of sexual violence. And I think it's, it's worth, and maybe we should have another conversation about this separate from this one, but that right from the very beginning, the church has argued that Mary's story is a story that calls sex as we know it into question. Mm. That what's happening with her is not sex. I mean, it's not the spirit playing the role of what a, of a man in other women's lives and that Mary's pregnancy is unlike anything that's ever happened before just as her birth the virgin birth is different from any birth that's ever happened before Maximus as you know I mean, he he says that this is this is the moment in which salvation begins to materialize because Mary chooses her child she all the rest of us, he said, are born out of blind passion, right? Even if the parents love one another and they are open to children, trusting God, they're not choosing the child that will be born. They have no idea who it is that will be formed in the mother mm -hmm. through this act of union, right? They're open to whomever God delivers if they, you know, acting in good faith, but no parent is choosing the child. There's an act of blind passion as he would say but with mary she's saying yes to the one who will be born in her and her surrender is a choice i mean it's a not choice of him yes yeah, absolutely yeah, yeah it's not just the choice to say i'm open to whatever mm. a child she is saying yes to is already the one making the promise holding her in being and making the promise of fulfillment through her so i think it's really vital to say that yes, Mary is a child in the sense that we're talking about, not a child who's then been forced into some sexual experience by God or by anyone else, but precisely in her childlikeness at whatever age she is, in her childlikeness is calling all of that sexual violence and a lot of what we do not even recognize as sexual violence into question and, yes. and showing that God's ways are not our ways, right? That his the ways in which he's at work in the world don't simply follow the trajectories of our moral codes or our the, the nature of things as we know it. So again, that's all a footnote to this conversation, but probably worth worth making. It's huge. So I I don't know exactly what's next. I do know that I want the I thought about First Corinthians thirteen, but I don't. That doesn't quite feel right. I want that to be a part of the conversation. But let's say for now, we don't know what the third fire is. The heart of this to me is the Luke and Beatitudes, which is slightly different from what we, it's again, the Beatitudes. But what's different here is that in Luke, we have the woes. So let's talk a little bit about the, how the woes factor here. So for those who, who don't remember, Luke 6, 20 to 26, we get the Sermon on the Plain, 
where we get a version of the Beatitudes that I think complement nicely what we have in Matthew 5. So you can, it begins with blessed are you who are poor, blessed are you who are hungry, blessed are you who are weep, who weep. So you get a slightly different ordering, but recognizable. Blessed are you when people hate you. But then we get a turn in which we get a layering of woes. Woe to you who are rich, you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing, you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. So this is, this is a different kind of flame. So talk a little bit about what you think the woes are doing. Yeah, that's a little terrifying, isn't it? And um, <laughs> yes. the only time, I confess, the only time I've preached on that passage, I, I did so in a refugee camp on the border of Myanmar, third generation refugee Baptists having a meeting. And I preached on that. And then, um, so the only, the only one who could have possibly been a recipient of the woes in that meeting was me. And uh, the altar call was to come to pray for me. And they mm. did. So other than that, I haven't had the guts really. But um, <laughs> so, of course, um, people have noticed that it seems like a more literalized version of all those words than in Matthew, you know, poor versus poor in spirit. Yeah. Um, I think it, it, this is clear throughout Luke's gospel. It matches perfectly with, with the kind of actual economic um, things that Mary is praying about in the Magnificat. Yes, absolutely. Um, and maybe we could see it this way. Um, we're all going to pass through the fire. Now, will that fire be the blessing of warmth and comfort mm. and uh, a heavenly kind of experience or will that same fire the river of fire that proceeds from the throne of christ um will that fire will we experience it like as darkness and terror and storm so i'm i'm using a couple examples from the old testament scriptures that the patristics love so they they yeah. think in terms of heaven and hell is um two experiences of the same thing so uh the pillar of fire in the wilderness felt very different to Pharaoh's armies than it did to the people of God. The fiery furnace in Daniel feels very different to the boys in the furnace than it does to the soldiers outside the fire, right? And so yeah. the same fire of, and, and I would, I, ultimately I would say it's the fire of divine love, but what will the fire of divine love do to those um, who are, who are defiant and who, have accumulated all of those things um, that those who are in poor in spirit have been emptied of. If you, those things will be consumed, yeah, ultimately, and, and, you know the well, irony there, right? The irony there. You see it with Moses. You see it with the three Hebrew children. And George McDonald picks up on this, but he's getting it from Origen via Gregory, mm -hmm. which is who's getting it from Macrina. That this fire burns more the farther you are from it. Oh, interesting. Like Moses in the midst of the fire. Yes. And to him, it's a it's a cloud of nearness. It's a it's a presence. To the Hebrew children in the midst of the fire, it's a, a moment of befriending the fourth one who's present to them. Well, and that Mary's called the burning bush in, in some of the liturgies. Absolutely. The yeah. the that the fire is in her, but it's not consuming her, right? Absolutely. And, 
and there's nothing to consume because she has poverty of spirit. But even so, I mean, the, the good news in the woes is that those things will be burned up. Um, he's not going to leave us giggling in our arrogance. He will bring about the transformation that takes yeah. us to mourning. That's actually a good thing. Um, yeah. Those who are enslaved by their riches will have their riches consumed so that they can learn complete trust in a heavenly father who cares about them. I've, I've never thought of it until just now about it in that the positive sense of these seven fires. It's, it's, it's devastating. Right. Uh, with a beautiful outcome, but we're still called to Jesus end of Mark nine is like, make sure you have this fire in yourself. Cause like, it's better to do it on purpose yeah. internally yeah. now um, than to undergo it in a way that feels like torment because you've clung so desperately. Um, like uh, you see in Macrina where she's like, um, you know, if you have built your life, out of attachments when you die though that house um cr crashes down on you and love can't leave you there but right. as love's pulling you out you'll feel the rebar wherever it's impaled you yeah <laughs> yes yeah i mean that's that's the that, that or i mean origin is so so terrific on this right that the there is and one of the conversations i'd love to have with you in the future is how central pain is to his understanding of salvation and I, I, these are my words, not his, but essentially, I think Origen's theology of salvation is that the truth hurts because it's healing what has harmed, where we have been harmed. It's healing us from what has harmed us. So there is, but there is pain. There is pain because it, there is no painless way to right the wrongs that have been done in us and that, mm. and that we have done. And I, I, I'm hearing that too in what you're saying. You see it in um in in courtrooms when when they, they do a victim, what do they call those statements? A victim impact statement. Mm. And the one the perpetrators faced with um having to hear the harm they've done and how that impacts them and yeah. and becomes part of their salvation, or at least potentially so. Well, they can't flee the courtroom, but maybe they could flee in their minds, but we won't be able to do that before the Lord. Yeah. And so the coals on our heads, right, is yeah. it's unto mercy, but it's, it's, uh, it's also these, I don't want to take the teeth out of, G, out of these woes. It's, all, it's also a dire warning. Yes, absolutely. That, that's exactly right. So I, I don't know what comes next yet i do know where i think it should end and so let me say something about the final fire okay and then we can talk a little bit about the gaps that are left and wh what i'm thinking the the final fire i think needs to be it feels clear to me needs to be ephesians 3 14 to 20 where there's oh. this prayer for christ to dwell in us as we are rooted and grounded in love and to comprehend the breadth, length, height, and depth. The reason I, that feels like the final fire is that it's it's a way to say, at least as I'm hearing it, that the Spirit is opening us up, like forming a womb in us for Christ to be to dwell. 
and that we are going to continue to grow with the growth of Christ who fills all things, right? So oh. we're, we're never going to stop comprehending the breadth, length, height, and depth. And that's because the power that is at work in us is going to accomplish abundantly more, abundantly beyond anything we can ask or think, anything we can ask or imagine. And what, what I come back to, every time I hear this passage, I think of it this way that whatever I'm asking for and wanting, even at my purest, the child in me, in its most faithful moment, cannot imagine how good the goodness God intends for me actually is. So whatever I can dream up, and I can dream up a lot of wonderful things, it isn't giving voice it will to the goodness all, god will do yeah it will always be higher wider longer and deeper than the most imaginative child could ever conceive right that's right which is the form of the cross in some of the patristic teachings they'll talk mm. about the yes the highs as heavens are above the earth so great it is his mercy to those who fear him um and and then east to west as far you know that the expanse of the the hands of the outstretched Christ are not too short to embrace anyone. There's no one beyond his wingspan. Mm -hmm. And then the, the deepest has, you know, his descent into Hades and this great Russian proverb. It's like, when you think you've bottomed out, you'll hear a knock from below. And mm -hmm. I would contend that it's Christ knocking. Yes. So yes. all of that, I really, I, I love, I love using Ephesians three. I don't think we've emphasized it enough because it too is a, a criterion for yeah. discernment of what is the gospel. If your gospel can contain the love of God, it's still too small. Absolutely. Any, if you put two gospels side by side, the one that has the longer, higher, deeper, wider love is more true. Yes. And Especially when you've already worked through the heart of the child, mm -hmm. Mary's song, the, the beatitudes, you know, like I, and, and somewhere in there, first Corinthians 13, like this is the, this is the nature of love. Love is not that it is this. And so I, I think let's, as we start to wrap up, let's talk about that. Where do you see first Corinthians 13 fitting in this furnace? Yeah. So um, I've historically, I've been a little annoyed that like Paul, don't tell us what it isn't, tell us what it is. But what, what I think is actually happening there is canonic. It is ap apophasis. Yeah. It's ap love is not this. It's not yes. that it's not. And so, which is the fire burning up false loves Absolutely. or burning up things that are opposed to love. So that that's really good. Um, before it gets away on us, I do, I do want to say, I, I would love to see some, at least first John four paired up with something here. Hmm, okay in the sense of that that um perfect love drives out fear and yeah. again so i see the furnace just like um sizzling away at things like our doctrine of retribution like yeah. and so the eastern orthodox church has at least the same ones they have no qualms about saying there is no retribution in the nature of god because yeah Perfect life, love drives out fear and fear has to do with punishment. So, so what's being driven out and it's ekbalo, it's like cast out mm -hmm. um, um, all, all of the conceptions or constructs we have around this punitive God. And that really is important if we are talking about woes, 
it's not that kind of woe, right? It's not right. that kind of, and so I don't know if you could pair up first John four with Ephesians three that, or the fact that what's being driven out is the things in first Corinthians 13 that aren't love. I, I don't know, but oh, I like that. I I'm like voting that. for it anyway. No, that that's exactly what I was hoping for. So I think the, do you think, do you see a kind of progression in first Corinthians 13? Let me read it to you again and see, given what we've been saying about the movements here, mm -hmm. listen to it now in, and yeah, see, I have some thoughts about it, but I want to hear, I don't want to prejudice your reading too much. <laughs> love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Yeah, the, I definitely hear a progression. I mean, you could keep going too, right? Like where there are prophecies, oh, they end. Yeah. You know, yeah. even at the beginning too, like the at the beginning like even if i even if even if even if and he's going oh, further and further into like yeah. even even in martyrdom if your yeah. martyrdom itself is not love forget it you know it's nothing. If, yeah. if, if if your charity itself is not love so he's he's burning mm -hmm. off a kind of per, oh nothing performative gets through the um right. the seven right. fires yes yes absolutely. which is it we're back to sermon on the mount right like <laughs> Um, the, the heart of the law is about, this is about love. It's not just, oh, did I manage not to, you know, kill my neighbor or sleep with his wife or steal his stuff last night? No, no, it's got to go much deeper than that. That's just right. Um, and, and I see that here in First Corinthians 13 as well. Um, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I mean, when you start putting the the name the word god or the name of jesus in there as love right yes um to me the most jarring line is that love keeps no record of wrongs and then that that of course bumps into my ideas about about the um um what the what's in the book of life and being judged by our deeds and all that and here's where some muslims could help us they have this conception that it's like you live your life with an angel on one shoulder and a demon on the other. Yeah. And they're both keeping ledgers and the demon keeps a ledger of wrongs. The angel keeps a, a, um, a ledger of rights. And then you come to the final judgment and each puts their, um, their ledger on one side of two scales. And then they're very clear about this. And that's not the judgment, <laughs> right? <laughs> the judgment right. is when the all merciful one comes and yeah. he looks at your life and then he renders his verdict, mm -hmm. which um, I don't know about if there's any universalist Muslims, but his verdict can be mercy yeah. and he can weigh them however he wants to. Uh, he can put his finger on the scales. And there's even some concepts in Arabic around the word Messiah that's almost equivalent to eraser and so the messianic role is to erase the what the demons put on your that side of the scale. all of that stuff why did i tell you that it was um 
keeps no records uh, keeps, keeps no, record, no of record of wrongs you know then then i then i don't have then i can put christ himself into first corinthians 13 and not worry that i'm making it somehow contradict the judgment passages especially in the orthodox tradition where um, the father has rendered all judgment to his son and the son himself judges no one um, the judgment is our orientation to him but also who's the infallible judge is the conscience mm. and so the conscience comes to condemn us but first john says but even if your hearts condemn you god is greater god than your hearts and yeah. he's love right so yeah. that the love trumps the judgment yeah. mercy triumphs over judgment james right and that and and that the that the the righteous judge on his throne can render a verdict of mercy he's the only one trust we can trust to do that that actually um that that vetoes the the condemnation of our own conscience which is yeah i mean i think absolutely critical turn bonifer is so good on this that the the life of faith the life of holiness is a life that answers to the lord not to the conscience so mm -hmm. I, that's that's a, i think a fascinating yeah. fascinating line of re reflection here i, I want to which, by the way, sorry, um, it's what's happening in Orthodox confession every time as well. So we come, we're anxious, we're bringing that anxiety. Where's the anxiety coming from? Because our consciences have been condemning us. So we come to the confess our confessor, who then reminds our consciences of the mercy of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ to reconcile our consciences to us, because that's we don't need to be reconciled to God. Right. But 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 if we have a split in us between us and our conscience then then they're really performing a, a reconciliation meeting under un, under uh the gospel itself right so i somewhere i think micah 6 8 fits in here yeah yeah you'd recommended that to me before and i so i i don't have the plans finished but i think you can see what the what i'm hoping will come from it but let's as we're wrapping up, let's talk about what's happening here, both in kind of what you discovered, what you were led to with the Sermon on the Mount as a, a sevenfold fire, and now what I'm kind of being directed to with a furnace for discerning all this. I, I think it's, let me see if I can name it, and then you, you help me adjust. I think we're living in a moment of maybe mass delusion is too strong a word, but there is there's so much deception and confusion afoot, right? With, with people who are, who've lost touch with the heart of the child, who've lost touch with the gospel, who, who are, are, they have not internalized the Sermon on the Mount or Mary's song. And, and so we, we're using biblical terms, we're invoking the name of God, we're praying prayers, or at least claiming to pray prayers, there's a way in which there's this confusion is so deep, so thick mm -hmm. that it, it feels like despair is at hand for all of us. I was talking with a good friend of mine yesterday, pastor, that it's hard not to despair in the face of all the noise and to see not only the demagogues, not only the, the prophets falsely so-called, but people that I respect and trust be caught up in that 
like people that I love and enjoy be caught up in conspiratorial thinking, which we haven't named that yet until just this moment. But I, I do think that conspiratorial thinking is a, a red flashing warning sign. Like it's a symptom of deep, deep, deep disease. Yes. When, when you're, it's when you're the new gnosis, right? Yeah. The knowledge that puffs up. It's like, I've got, I've got this secret knowledge about, about the, the thing that's the conspiracy that's happening behind the scenes that only I can show you. Yeah. And, and, uh, and honestly, I would think, and I could name names, but from, I, I guess I won't, but so many of the so-called prophets right now in Pentecostal charismatic circles, if you listen to what they're saying, it's all just conspiracy. And what they're claiming is they're in on the conspiracy with God, right? The, this is an outlandish example. Unfortunately, all of it is outlandish. So it's hard to find an example that's even close to sane enough to, to seem relevant. But one of the prophets who's on Christian TV and has a you know global ministry talking about the fact that in heaven, Trump has been declared winner and that that will be manifested in the earth right now. Providentially an actor playing the role of, of Biden has been allowed to remain in the white house so that the deeper corruption can be taken out of the U S government system. I mean, that's as, I mean, that's conspiratorial thinking on an altogether, you know, talk about grandiosity. Yeah, right? It's mental illness. It, it is mental. It, that's yeah. exactly what it is. And, and that seems like an outlandish example, except I could give you hundreds of similar kinds of things from the circles that I move in mm. and that, that you're familiar with as well. And so I think that why I'm being drawn to it, and I'm, I think why you were drawn to it in the first place is we've got to find some way to discern what is true, because what we cannot do is say the truth can't be known. Yeah. Like the, the spirit is not going to fail to lead us to the truth. We just need to know how that is going to happen. And it seems to me the spirit is going to do that by bringing us to the scripture. But in our circles, you can't simply say that. As you said, talking about the Bible and the church isn't going to be enough for people who are weakly Christianized or poorly Christianized. If they're drunk on Christian nationalism or Christianism of whatever kind, then it isn't going to do any good to simply say, read your Bible and pray. Like we've got to have some way of bringing them to particular texts to say, this is the heart of God. Yeah. This is the character of God. So I'm going to give you the last word, but I, does that seem like it, that that's my assessment of the moment we're in or my diagnosis of the moment we're in yeah. and why it is that I'm, I'm being drawn to this. I, yeah, I, I totally concur. We're, we're like exactly on the same page on this. So my sense is that what you're describing is a Gordian knot and that there are some things now that are so confused and so entangled that it's not possible to disentangle them, but you can come, you can come with a sword of the Lord yeah. or the furnace or whatever. And that, and we can pray that the spirit would attend the preaching of that fire with the living fire to to consume the, the deeper disease that's driving the delusion and um and and uh 
I don't have a plan B. But one way we might think about this is because you're thinking in terms of multiple fires, um, the way I wouldn't approach it with, with a group is to say, okay, I'm going to show you how this all fits together. That's yeah. for you and me to have fun with and to right. play out. But the way I see it is more like every single one of these would be like, I'm going to switch metaphors now. It's like, we're going to bang the rock this week with the Beatitudes. We're going to bang the rock next week with the Magnificat. We're going to bang the rock. We're going to bang the rock. And, and then... And then the cumulative effect of 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 coming again and again and again with that with with the fire that can consume even the Gordian knot may may be a hope. And to avoid despair, um, <laughs> we might also say uh, to the degree that it takes time that that is precisely um, proportional to, to uh, the resistance that needs to be overcome mm. and what it takes to bottom out on the delusion. Wow, and wow, 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 wow. It wow. takes time and, and we don't want to be codependent in a way yeah. that we are prematurely rescuing people from their delusion. It may need to play right out. Yeah. And until they're ready to say, it'd be nice if they'd repent now, but some won't repent now. And so we just have to keep stoking the fire until the moment where they're like, I'm ready. I am so done with this. Please, can anyone speak to this? It's like, okay, yes. we, yes. Well, I, yeah, let's, I, let's end it there because I think that's, that's it. One, the, the Psalm that we started with Psalm 12, six, the word of the Lord is pure, like silver refined seven times. There's a phrase that you jumped over when you quoted it. Mm -hmm. It can be translated in a couple of different ways. So one, one way of translate, well, more than a couple, but essentially it's, it can either be read as a furnace of earth, like so, uh, some kind of clay furnace, or a furnace on the ground. Mm. And what you just said there about the delusions bottoming out like i think i think what we're missing right now is we're out of touch with our humanity we're out of touch with reality we've lost that earthenness right like we're we're carried away into illusions mm. fantasies mm -hmm. and and what we need is to be grounded yeah right? to be to be brought back to what is human, what it means <laughs> to brought back to earth right and i think yeah, not proposing any kind of technique, but to say we need to soak ourselves in the heart of God as it's revealed in scriptures, in the scriptures, until we start to bottom out, until we're yeah. back on the ground again. And nothing that's going to take time. I think to your to your point, that's not quick. And maybe the reason I'm being drawn to we need a bigger furnace is that it's just going to take more time that the the delusions have that have set in require a longer term purification yeah nevertheless urgent right Absolutely. so the thing we need to urgently do could take 200 years yeah to do right. but it's urgent that it begins now it begins now so that my grandson's grandson isn't 
the last generation that walks this earth you know like it's that kind of urgency absolutely yeah and, and i i do feel that that urgency for sure i mean with with my own kids and the kids of my my friends and people that i i love and care for like there is i think a mass 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 well the, the way i put it and i think i shared this with you the way i put it a week or so ago is culture war like any war doesn't simply kill the warriors it destroys their families and the infrastructure of their countries yeah and it leads to mass displacement and the fact that our churches have engaged in the culture wars and have continued to escalate the culture wars means not only that some of those warriors are going to die on the front lines but that their families are going to be destroyed that their institutions are going to be destroyed, but most of all, their children are going to be displaced. And what we're already seeing and what we're about to see is a flood of refugees. Our children are going to be leading that flood of refugees mm -hmm. one way or another. Either our children are going to be led to see the Lord as he is so that when they're with their friends at school and at work, they can say, no, 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 that's not what Christianity is. That's not who Jesus is, even if that is what Christianity has become here. You know, it's in, in some ways, I think it's, it's going to be a reverse of the Jesus movement. You know, so the Jesus movement, which I know you know a lot about, right, is a movement that kind of starts outside the churches, away from the church's reach, but makes its way in and renews the church by coming in from the outside. But I think what we're going to need are to care for people who are refugees from our churches who are mm -hmm. fleeing it. The Jesus movement is run in the other direction now. Mm -hmm. And we're going to need people outside of our churches who in, in the sense of outside of the, the normal structures, ready to welcome those, those kids. So I'm gonna, that's my last word. I'm going to give you the last word in light of all this. My last word is amen. It's a good one. <laughs> what an amazing, uh, what an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for drawing things out of me. I hadn't even seen yet. So I appreciate it. That's the spirit at work. Absolutely. It's lovely. Thank you for this. This is holy conversation for me. Um, mm. Hopefully somewhere John Wesley and the communion of the saints is, is enjoying it. Amen. I love you, brother. Love I know you got to get to work, so I'm going to let you go. Okie dokie. Thanks, man. Absolutely. Hi to your fam. Same. Okay, ciao.